When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, this week we're talking about For Every Man, which was released in 1973 and is Jackson Brown's second studio album. It peaked at number 43 on the Billboard charts, and its first single, Redneck Friend, reached number 85. It was ranked number 450 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, where they called him the J.D. Salinger of the L.A. singer-songwriters. So something I like to do before these conversations is read a little bit from the Rolling Stone reviews for these albums that came out initially in the 70s. I love the idea that the person reviewing For Every Man when it came out in 1973 doesn't have the benefit of hearing the albums that came after or seeing the person's full career in its like full scope the way they would when they place it number 450 on Rolling Stone's top 500 albums. All that the reviewer can do in the moment is see the album for the album that it is. They know the material that existed previous to that, and they know this album. That's it. And this one in particular, which is written by a writer named Janet Maslin, who still writes for the New York Times, I think is amazing. I think it's beautifully written. I think it's super insightful. I think it's it's my favorite of the Rolling Stone reviews I've read so far in this process. This is a person who really understands this artist and the scene he's coming from. She reviewed For Every Man. I'm going to read a little bit from that and I'll kind of pop in with some thoughts along the way. His work is a unique fusion of West Coast casualness and East Coast paranoia, easygoing slang and painstaking precision, child's eye romanticizing and adult's eye acceptance. He is the first major songwriter to have emerged with the knowledge that the battles Bob Dylan depicted a decade ago are either over or too ambiguous to be worth fighting anymore. But unlike most writers, he's not yet ready to retreat into merely miming the realm of private problems for subject matter. He has internalized the remains of those larger struggles and still dares to hope for solutions. So I don't have the benefit of intimately understanding what the 60s were like and the 70s were like because I wasn't there, but I've come to understand them through music in a lot of ways. And I have a sense of what Bob Dylan was doing in the 60s at the peak of the Vietnam War and then what Jackson Brown was doing in the early 70s and also what Bob Dylan was doing in the early 70s and what artists like James Taylor. All right, back to the review. Despite the themes that bind many of its songs together, For Every Man is essentially a collection rather than an album. Most of these songs are so complete that they resist Jackson's attempts to run them together, although Sing My Songs to Me is an exception. And what she's getting at there is that Sing My Songs to Me flows beautifully into the title track For Every Man at the very end of the album. Um, Ryan and I discussed this theme. This album has some of his best songs ever, but some of those songs are Take It Easy and These Days, which were recorded by super famous artists like the Eagles and Nico and Greg Allman. And not only are they songs that you associate with other artists, but they're just really standout songs and and they take you to a different place as you listen to this album, for better or worse. This album is amazing, but it's impossible to say that that doesn't 
have an impact on the flow or where your head is when you're taking in all 10 of these songs together. Jackson can usually turn street talk around to his own advantage, restoring cliches to their original meanings and arriving at an amazingly loose form of expression. But the glibness gets out of hand on Take It Easy, and even more so in Redneck Friend, which sounds like too deliberate an attempt to create a single by someone whose art, even at its most casual, remains too complex for strictly AM audiences. Still, Redneck Friend inadvertently offers up a line that's a concise, albeit conservative, estimation of the whole album's merits. 11 on a scale of 10. That's just a super thoughtful, close look at a piece of music that came out at a time and place, and I'm glad that this project kind of brought me to it. Um, so last week we showered a ton of well-deserved love on Saturate Before Using, and this one brings the same level of admiration, but we do find a few more moments to poke and prod. If you're looking at someone's full body of work, it only makes sense to do so with that kind of honesty, in my opinion, but art is subjective, and if you feel compelled, you can go to anchor.fm slash after the deluge. Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Routine Layup. And if you're really enjoying the show, you can go to patreon.com slash after the deluge to support it and get some very cool bonus content. There is a link in the show description. And so now I'll pivot over to our guest today, whose name is Ryan Page. Ryan Page is a musician who lives on Orcas Island in Washington, which is also where I currently live. Uh, Ryan and I met at a punk show in which Jackson Brown came up pretty organically in conversation, as you're going to hear pretty early in our interview. Uh, Ryan's natural wheelhouse is 70s punk music, bands like Big Star and Velvet Underground and Modern Lovers. But he's got a major side of him that loves just strong songwriting, and he's got an appreciation for hook and melody. And connect those dots, and you're going to end up at Jackson Brown at some point. And he loves Jackson Brown. So... We've had a lot of conversations about this already, in addition to conversations about like the Eagles and a bunch of other music. But I really enjoyed the chance to sit down and talk specifically not only about Jackson Brown, but this collection of songs. Just another dreamer, dreaming about every man. stoked to talk about this album really honored to be one of your illustrious guests we were at a show in a barn and kind of one of the first times we've met each other and watching some bands play none of them really jackson brown adjacent and jackson brown came up in conversation and that's not a thing that happens all the time in my life and so uh formed a bond over that i remember the conversation exactly actually actually i, I remember the the flow of it we, we were just talking and we were talking about music and and sort of going, you know, okay, like you're, we're our mutual friend, you know, he plays music. What kind of music do you like? And I said something like, you know, I just, I really, I like people that have really good songwriting, you know, someone like Jackson Brown and you're in, and you're just like, I fucking love Jackson Brown. I fucking love Jackson. Brown. I remember you saying that very clearly. Cause I, I like, cause that's, I've always waited for someone to say that to me in that conversation and it's never happened before. Yeah. It doesn't, I mean, there, I think people who like Jackson Brown tend to love him a lot. Like people who, people who love him, love him a lot. They feel a real strong connection to him, but those, those, it's, it's not like a, 
those people aren't all over the place. You don't end up in that conversation, especially with someone like in their thirties at a, uh, sort of punk adjacent show in a barn, you know, truly, truly. All right. So for every man is Jackson Brown's second album. We were on the second album in his discography on this. What I'll say about this album is at a time in my life, it was my favorite Jackson Brown album. And that's not necessarily the case now. Um, what's your feelings about this album? It's definitely, you know, I think we've talked before about, I think the first three albums are his best albums, but I would put this at the sort of bottom of the ranking of those first three. I do, I am currently holding my copy of the vinyl for this, the vinyl record of this album. In some ways it's, it's definitely not as much of, you know, obviously a concept album as late for the sky. It's more of a pastiche kind of thing, but if you just put it on your record player, it does make sense as a whole um, record. Um, Maybe all the songs don't like, perfectly uh, lyrically makes sense together i also think that this album the side a is just like clearly the the stronger material for me anyways and then side b for me too i I think actually what i feel about that is that side a does actually flow i think take it easy is kind of its own thing kind of feels like a pop song to kick it off and then those next four songs just run beautifully into each other and all feel very like appropriate to one another and then redneck friend kicks off the second side and if you listen to that on like a spotify playlist or a cd that just feels like a a hard left turn on pretty abrupt like kind of takes you out of it but i think the fact that i think the fact that it's it's worth remembering that this was a record at some point so or it's 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 you you're holding the vinyl in front of you the act of like flipping it kind of makes it work a little better but that second side of the album until those two final songs run into each other just feels like it kind of goes everywhere that's so that's so interesting cuz i really you know you're making me realize how sort of dead the concept is of like track 1 side b you know like if you're making an album yeah. and it's 2019, there's no reason to not just put all of your best songs in order <laughs> on the album. Yeah. Whereas I, that that song does make a lot more sense as like flipping a record over and starting a new gear. And there's probably lots of albums like that listened to on Spotify that have a really jarring song in the middle of it, um, or like tonal shift. That if you if you weren't thinking of it in those terms, I definitely wasn't thinking of it in those terms. Even though I'm holding the final record when I've been listening to this album, getting ready for this podcast. I will say in colors of the sun is such a sad bastard song like uh, <laughs> our lady of the well. And I thought I was a child. Th- those are probably in my top five favorite Jackson Brown songs. And then colors of the sun is right in the middle. And it's just like, it's very plotting. Yeah. That song to me, I think what, where it's genius lies is that it's, it's not like the kind of verse structure and things that usually grab me. It's kind of like, 
this kind of dramatic ringing, uh, almost like sounds like slightly sung poetry over like this kind of dramatic ringing sound. But then it releases into these choruses that are so satisfying and they pay off so well. And it, it kind of just contrasts throughout that song so much. Colors of the sun flashing on the water top on the land Digging for a coin Many other tiny And like when he sings the, the, the melody of the chorus but the words are changing the whole time like I wave goodbye to Joseph and Maria and stuff at the end I just that run of songs is just so solid to me ending with these days like that side one of this album is great so it's it's hard to talk about this album without talking about the fact that two of the songs on the A side were recorded by more famously and probably definitely more successfully from a commercial standpoint by other artists um, in our you know in popular consciousness the definitive versions of those songs. I think that's that's part of this that's part of this record's DNA. Like he. I actually looked, I didn't realize, like I, you talk about those first three albums, it's insane to think this. Self-titled album came out in 72, this album came out in 73, and Life of the Sky came out in 74. That's crazy. Like I I kind of thought of these first five yeah. albums as being equally scattered throughout the 70s, but that's, so, so for every man, you make this debut album and then you go back to a song you wrote in your teens in um, these days. And then this song that yeah. you co-wrote with Glenn Fry from the Eagles with Take It Easy, and they're both on side A of your second album. There was a little bit of distance from Nico recording these days to this. And so some of these songs, yeah, it's an incredible sort of three-year run to be able to put out those three albums in three years. In our popular consciousness, or not even so popular, con- in my popular consciousness, these days the Nico song is a hit. I don't think it was a hit in the early 70s. And so um, now that album is sort of iconic to, you know, people of a certain bent and of a certain musical predilection. But, I, you know, I'm sure it's still not that well known today outside of being like that song from the Royal Tenenbaums. And so Take It Easy is kind of a different beast because the Eagles were so popular and that would, you still hear that on the radio. You could It probably plays on the radio every single day just about. Um, whereas these days, I, you know, that's also obviously a very personal song. Um, I could, I, I could easily see the rationale and the justification for, you know, yes, someone else recorded this, but now, now people are going to hear my version. I, and I think with these days, like it's so the, the way, and Jackson Brown plays guitar on that Nico version, but it's, it's picked so differently and it's played so differently. And obviously Nico is singing it completely differently. So like hearing, the, hearing uh-huh. his version of these days on for every man feels almost like a, a new song, like a different song. Whereas take it easy. I actually really like Jackson Brown's version of take it easy. I think because the Eagles take, take it easy and they just Eagles the shit out of it. Like, and all, all the way down to like the, woo woo woos at the end and everything and Jackson Brown's but yeah. but what I have to say is that like Jackson Brown's version of take it easy feels kind of like a 
almost like the demo recording for what the Eagles then end up using to make their big blown out one, which is like yeah. different than, yeah, that's different than cover the Nico one. Like you're hearing this very different thing, you know, like it's something about the Eagles version. It feels much more layered musically. Like there's more details on the Eagles version. And so it makes the Jackson Brown version. I don't know if that, well, I mean, they kind of co-wrote it, if if I'm remember, or at least Glenn Fry like claims they co-wrote. Yeah, they lived. They lived in the, the same the Jackson... apartment structure, and and uh, I think actually Jackson Brown was writing a, a lot of it. Glenn Fry liked it more than Jackson Brown. Like Jackson Brown was sort of unsure of it, probably in the like poetic, uh, introspective, writerly way that he approaches songwriting. Whereas Glenn Fry is just like a like a three chord hit maker, and I think. He, he right. then added some verses and they co-wrote it. Well, and I, I I think I've gone on record before stating that the the finger picking banjo at the end of the Eagles version really makes the song for me, and, which is a very specific detail. But that's that's just the kind of music listener that I am, and so I'm always waiting for that at the end of the Jackson Brown, you know, version of the song, and there's. When I don't get it, I'm just, I feel very unsatisfied. You talk about that. I haven't deliberately gone out of my way to listen to that uh, version of Take It Easy in years. I actually probably never will in my life because like you said, it plays on the radio every day. And so it's, it's going to find me yeah. when I need to, <laughs> but I can absolutely, I can, I can, I can absolutely hear that banjo line right now in my head. It's like, it's singed in my head. It's pretty solid really. Yeah. And the other thing, I know we're kind of jumping back and forth between Take It Easy and These Days, but I really agree with what you're saying about it just being the, the Nico version. It's just a totally different arrangement. And also, you know, her whole persona is so cold. It's almost impossible to believe that she's had any of these experiences that she's singing about. Yeah. Whereas the Jackson Brown version feels much, much more personal. The lyrics feel more relevant not just like a person who are who is singing words. Yeah. Yeah, it's a well, so it's cool like you, you I've on one of the documentaries I saw you you Jackson Brown is playing that guitar line on that recording. He's playing an electric guitar. And... I've been I don't do too much talking these days. And then, so basically, he did a live, a couple live albums, like in the in the last decade, and um, he he plays on that live version. He plays that sort of like Nico finger picking line, like that like uh -huh. really rhythmic feeling one, and it's kind of cool. It's kind of like a cool like middle ground between his version and, and her version. Um, oh man, I would love to see that. It's also interesting on the the credits of the album. Under these days, there's a credit that says the arrangement was inspired by Greg Ullman. Take that for what you will. None of the other songs have any <laughs> credits for who the arrangement was inspired by. Um, That's wild. I, I know Greg Ullman is one of the guys who recorded it, right? Like, like Nico had that recording, but Greg Ullman, I don't know if it was before him uh, or after him, but Greg Ullman is one of the more popular these days recordings, too. Yeah. I, I, I think everyone should have a recording of that song. The idea that he wrote that at such a young age is just amazing to me. Just the lyric, these days I, I sit on quarter stones and count the time and quarter tones till 10. I don't, I really don't need that to mean anything. And I'm sure it means something, but it just sounds so fucking cool. I just love that lyric. And to write that at that age is crazy. 
heart to something like that as far as it's like all right some people just fucking have it not that jackson brown didn't work really hard to be a successful musician and a successful songwriter like it takes a lot of effort but it doesn't matter how hard you work you're not writing these days when you're 16 and i i'm always fascinated by the like the popular songs that were written by by people around that age alex chilton has a lot of um reasonably famous songs that he wrote when he was that age are you familiar with the letter by the box tops do you know that song yeah 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 alex that's alex chilton singing that song and he wrote it and they they recorded that version of the song when he was like 16 or 17 years old and he sounds like he's 75 (laughs) that's crazy give me a ticket for an airplane (laughs) yeah he sounds like ronald reagan (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's that's like amazing, but the idea that that was written by someone that young is crazy. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah, I love that kind of lore. That's like an infectious pop song. That's a really good song. Alex Shelton, man. One thing that I learned about this album, and actually I listened to a pretty recent interview with Jackson Brown that was actually a really good kind of like um, career-spanning type interview with a guy, I think it was the Hollywood Reporter, Scott Feinberg was a guy, asked a lot of really good questions. And something I learned is that, like, so Jackson Brown's a solo musician who none of these are just, like, him and an acoustic guitar. All these albums have full-on arrangements with many musicians and everything like that. But he, on this album, he talks about this a lot on that podcast, that basically Mm -hmm. he he wouldn't have super specific ideas about how the other people should play. He kind of just let them try things, and sometimes that would yield something really cool sometimes maybe you'd have to work at it a while or you just be fine with what comes but but this album has no producer i didn't know that um it says it's produced by jackson brown it says it's produced by jackson brown but basically his quote is that the album just sort of trickled out of him he just out of the whole band and i think interestingly like because he would go on to have producers. Like, I've, I've already recorded a couple of these about some of the later albums, and they do have producers. And, like, John Landau produced The, the Pretender, like Bruce Springsteen's producer. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I don't know, the uh, like, the, a producer's job in a lot of ways is to sort of, like, see the project, like, from a distance and make sure it's all holding together and feeling like something that belongs together. And... I mean, one of the observations about this album is that it, as for all of its amazing songs and amazing moments, kind of doesn't do that quite as well. And I wonder if that's interesting. If he would say it could have benefited from a producer, I don't know. That's also a good segue to someone we haven't mentioned at all, which is David Lindley, who shows up on this album for the first time in Jackson Brown's career. And like the one thing, the one thing that Jackson Brown's version of um, "Take It Easy," which is will be the first song we can start with has that the Eagles one doesn't have is David Lindley. And, and it, it struck me as I was listening to it on this recent road trip I took that 
basically the very first note you get on the album is like him sliding his guitar up. You, you hear his slide guitar basically in the initial with the initial strum, and it's sort of like, okay, David Lindley's here now. Into, he comes fully into his own as as a collaborator on Late for the Sky, the next album. That's sort of like the David Lindley, like uh, it's just perfection. Uh-huh. But he's got he's amazing. You know, on and this album too. I I totally agree, and I I love David Lindley. Um, he he's really he's credited with a lot of different parts on this album. You know, he's playing fiddle, he's playing slide guitar, he's playing acoustic guitar. You're right. It that that is the sort of tone that's like different from the Eagles version. I think. You hear him through those first few tracks, uh-huh. and then the final song on on side A is um, "These Days," mm-hmm. and the that's sort of his the sort of end end of song solo David Lindley moment on that is like the is so good, yeah. so affecting, and just the song's so solid. But you just get like that's when you get like full on the, this guy's playing an instrument, but it's like. It's essentially making you feel emotions. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to describe the slide guitar and what David Lemley is able to do with the slide guitar. He's able to you know, translate, translate emotions into music. Yeah. Um, and so something else that I think that, um, Jackson Brown is really great as a songwriter and I'm sort of transitioning to our lady of the well, which is, this is high on my list of Jackson Brown songs that I like to sing to myself and I can just never quite hit those notes. Like I don't, I can't explain it. He's not he's not singing like Michael McDonald or something. It's not some huge high falsetto. He's just like in a in a interesting register. But I I feel like this song in some ways it makes me think of very political things. Yeah. You know? Um as far as just sort of the direction of the country and this sort of like getting back to the land thing. At least that is sort of my takeaway from the song. And I feel like it's a very relevant song to where we're at. And it's sort of a helpful reminder that people felt the same way at other times, specifically in this instance, the early 70s. Um, and and I, can't, I can't help but hear that song. It's a beautiful, well-sung song that also seems very political to me. Across the sand to find this peace among your people in the sun Where the families work the land as they have always done Oh, it's so far the other way my country's gone One thing I've done in this podcast is that I'm reading all of the initial Rolling Stone reviews that came out Because, I mean, it's like early 70s, this is a really cool, cool like Rolling Stone is what you want to be reading yeah. at that that time period. So these are kind of like def- definitive in nature uh-huh. these articles. But 
Um, what's also cool about it is if you're reading a review in Rolling Stone that came out in 1973 when this album came out, like Late for the Sky doesn't exist yet. The Pretender doesn't exist right. yet. You don't, you don't, you're not reading something about the album that exists within the larger context of everything right. they made. You're just hearing it as like, okay, the guy who made Rock Me on the Water and Doctor My Eyes <laughs> in this first album has made this one now. Like what, like where, how does this one fit into like, what is this as, as sort of a next project? And, and the writer is Janet Maslin, who's like a film critic for the New York Times still. And I actually emailed her a little bit back and forth and talked about some of these uh-huh. songs and everything. And she, in in her review, she talks about what you just said. Like he, I think because I listened to those first five albums kind of all simultaneously when I got into Jackson Brown, I don't, I don't see it in that linear way. Like I don't see one thing as a progression f- from like a first album to a second album so much. But she talks about like, some more ambitious vocal pieces and, and higher notes and certain, because he basically was a a poet who could write songs, but you're not, you're not talking about Jackson Brown to talk about him as like a singer with a ton of range or, or some super technical person, but you, it's cool to read. I mean, I think you you try, you go sit down and try to sing those songs and like, see how many notes you just like, don't quite hit for whatever reason. I'll say, like, as someone who, like, can, f- like, fairly competently play singer-songwriter songs on a guitar, I don't know how to play Our Lady of the Well, Colors of the Sun, any, or I Thought I Was a Child. They're all, like, I Thought I Was a Child hits some real notes, too. Yeah. The, both of those songs are very similar to, like, in that way to me. And I love singing them, and it's sort of like a, a one-way street. Like, they, it feels like they don't love me back. <laughs> you know, sometimes doing research... Uh, can kind of backfire on you <laughs> when you know too much about the songs and they should just exist in your sort of ephemeral memory. And I'm kind of skipping around now, but ready or not, well, this is the definitive song about pregnancy, right? Not that there's a, a ton of uh, contenders for that title, but it's like, this is a really sweet song about a woman who's pregnant and like if my wife ever got pregnant again, I I would love to just like sing this song for her. And and when I was talking to my wife about it, she was like, Well, who's this song about? Who who you know, it's obviously directed at someone. I was like, I don't know, I'll look it up. Yeah. And come to find out that it was about his late wife, not only his wife who ended up taking her own life, but also come to find out that she hated that song. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't play that song live anymore. I think basically since the 70s. This this song that I thought was all pure and sweet about people settling down and having kids and, you know, everyone, you, you, we're all, we're dads. Like we can, everyone can relate to that feeling of like, uh, I don't know how it's going to work, but we're just, I don't know if I'm ready, but we're going to make it work. And then like, I, I, yeah, it's super sad that she ends up taking her life, but she's also even prior to that entitled to not like the song. I love that song. I think that song is so good. And I think it's like so much of Jackson Brown's writing is is a little bit, especially before it got more political in the 80s, was more abstract and you kind of had to sit with things and unpack them. And that one just tells a very plain spoken story about two people and how they come together and have a have a kid in mm-hmm. a not necessarily planned way. And I just think it's so solid. Like it's so, it's kind of like, uh, like in a lot of indie music and songwriter music, it's it's you can kind of hide the straightforward meaning, and a lot of uh-huh. times that's like kind of a safe way to uh-huh. go. This one just comes out and says it, and and 
just does a good job without any fear of feeling corny or anything. Um, I love that song. Someone's gonna have to explain it to me. I'm not sure what it means. My baby's feeling funny in the morning. She's having trouble getting into her jeans. The waistline seems to be expanding. Although she never feels like eating a thing. Guess we'll reach some understanding when we see what the future will bring. I did read, I did read in that same um, Janet Maslin Rolling Stone review that at live shows at this time he would sing instead of "Bless My Soul," she's got a rock and roll band man thinking about settling down. He would sing, he would sing "Bless My Soul," she's got a rock and roll asshole thinking about settling down, which is pretty cool, but. I actually don't know the total intent of it, but I like the idea that that was happening back in the 70s as early as when he wrote it. I'd imagine he was probably overstating his, like, the amount of sort of domesticity that he ended up in, you know, for what he's writing. Like, doesn't exactly line up with a a mega-selling artist who was on tour probably most of the year. That's a good point. He does not not follow through on settling down, really. He basically goes on to, like... (laughs) make some of his biggest <laughs> commercial records right after this all right so you, you let's let's hop back to redneck friend which we've talked about a little bit tell me uh what does redneck friend mean to you well as we me and my wife were joking about today it's a it's a very easily easy song to read as being about jackson brown's penis <laughs> it's truly I, I think it's a good it's a good rock and roll song i really actually like that song it actually has some really good lyrics but <laughs> No, I don't really think it's like a euphemism for his penis, but I'm not really quite sure what the hell he's talking about, to be honest. Like, Interestingly, it was the lead single on the album, which I didn't know. I, I assumed, I guess you can't make Take It Easy the lead single if the Eagles already did that. And the song right. For Every Man, I assumed the song For Every Man was, but I guess when you really look at it, it's not like... It's kind of a slow. Yeah, well, that song. song's kind of long too, yeah, it's, right? It's like yeah, it's not really a radio song. Long. And actually, like the way we're talking about um, Redneck Friend is is in critical terms. I like Redneck Friend. Like, I te- I think it's got a cool melody, cool chord progression, cool. It's got a lot of cool lines to it. Um, but it it's 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 more a matter of like it it accompanies nine other songs on an album and just kind of feels weird and has a like like Rosie Rosie on um uh running on empty is another song about that song about like a roadie bringing a girl into a show and then the girl goes away with the drummer and he's left to be by himself and Rosie is his hand and it's like that's a song that's it's just done so well and so artfully and it feels completely tasteful that's that's total that's total news to me I I feel so oblivious right now like yeah look up listen to rosie listen to rosie and look up rosie that's what that's about and it's so good (laughs) well i honestly like never even occurred to me until today that redneck friend i mean now that i'm looking at the album too they're they're it's not redneck friend it's red neck friend it's three words not two words so i think that speaks to (laughs) this theory (laughs) The other so the other cool the other cool thing about this is that it says the the piano player on this is someone named Rockaday Johnny and that's Elton John who didn't have a who was there on a um he didn't have a visa to actually like work so he 
is playing under another um, name. He couldn't be credited as the piano player on it, but piano player on Redneck Friend is Elton John. Pretty cool. Damn, what a name drop. Yeah, seriously. But you can't even drop the name. Like, Rocket A. Johnny is an awesome fake name. I think it's a, a reference to a an old Bob Dylan song. I think that name exists in an old Bob Dylan song. Uh, um, but I, That's like, how many people do you think can sort of upstage Jackson Brown on the piano? <laughs> like, Jackson Brown plays piano plenty on this album, and to to have to you have to be fucking good to come in and be like, all right, I'm going to play piano on this. And of course, you know, Elton John is in that caliber. Yeah, he's a hundred percent qualified. That's the barn burner. And then the, the last four songs, they sort of meander their way through the rest of the runtime. Uh, you go redneck friend and then you drop down to these times you've come and then you pop back up to this super literal, like uh, story of a family forming in without full planning then you dip back down to sing my songs to me and then sings my sing my songs to me riding into for every man is like the that's beautiful to me like i love i think for every man's a great song and i think if any if anything to me i think of sing my songs to me as like a an entry into for every man he does a really really good job of the whatever song is the same title as the album feels very like this is like the thesis statement. This is the, the, the thing that is going to represent the whole, like for every man is that song for this album, even though like if I could only have one for the rest of my life, it'd probably be these days or one of those early ones. But then he does it again on late for the sky, except instead of last, it's the first song. Then he does it again on the pretender when it's the last song, like on for every man. And then he does it again on running on empty. Like those songs are all, those songs are all like the song that you that whether they're the best song or not, they represent that album, and they, he does such a good job of that. And they always play, come in either first or last, which is just cool. Everybody I talk to is ready to leave with the light of the morning. They've seen the end coming down long enough to believe that they've heard their last when you take the, the the actual album, the outer part of it is like a window, and when you take the record sleeve out, it has the same picture, just minus Jackson Brown. Have you seen this? Yeah, my dad. So I have a copy of this record, but it's like a bad-looking pressing that isn't like that. It's just like the album cover flap, but uh-huh. the copy my dad has is like that. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. It's it's just that they didn't they didn't put any effort into it's, that. It's like the later versions of Sticky Fingers, where it doesn't have the actual zipper on the thing. It's just like a picture of it. Right. I wonder if this is an original pressing that I have then, because it doesn't have any like repressing dates on it. I find it hard to imagine that it's from, this is from 1973 and it's in this good a condition. It was awesome talking, Ryan. This is super fun. Yeah, I think we're in a in a similar place with with this album. It's it's basically those first three and even you can blow it out to almost the first five albums are so good that all you can really do as you talk about them in a context like this is put them all on a curve with each other. And I think that's what we did today with For Every Man. I don't, I don't have a, a huge vinyl collection. So for me to have anything on vinyl, it's like this is one of my, my favorite albums. Um, but I love picking nits, so. No, it's like it's that's kind of the purpose of this. And 
I think it's cool to put this album out and then one year later come with Late for the Sky, like an eight-song masterpiece. And like you said, like there probably was some like, all right, well, I've got these songs that I wrote that I'm proud of and I want to have my versions of them out there and then these other new songs and then now you do have a clear deck and then you go make Late for the Sky. It's oh, super cool. I'm going to go listen to that right now. All right. Well, thank you, man. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening, and thanks again to Ryan Page for joining me. If you know someone who might like this show, please do pass it along. Next week is Late for the Sky, and it doesn't get much better than that. So see you then.